Welcome to Shanghai Zhan, a raw and lively regular debate about China tech, advertising, creativity, platforms, and the intersection of it all. Join us each session for timely and relevant discussions on all things China marketing. We'll also be joined by an entire spectrum of China experts. You can learn more about Shanghai Zhan at our website, johnstation.com. Coming to you directly from the city of Shanghai, I'm Bryce Switwam, and I'm Ali Kazmi. And we'd like to thank all of you for your continued support. If you like the show, share with your friends, or better yet, give us one of those five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Making the podcast is pure love, and it's not profit. And if you'd like to donate, you can do so at Patreon.com. P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com/slash/ShanghaiJian. Ali, today we're talking about user influence on export brands from China. With a market valuation of 300 billion yuan as of December 31st, 2021, China's online fashion retailer Shein became the country's most valuable cross-border e-commerce company. Another company that a lot of people own in the U.S. but probably don't know the name is Anchor Innovations, headquartered in Changsha, is a leading challenger to global peripherals and devices brand Logitech. Anchor had a market valuation of about 41 billion yuan. There are hundreds of other outbound export companies, including Xiaomi, of course, Neo, AliExpress, and others. Today, we're talking with Jim Fields. He's a social media influencer on YouTube and Billy Billy, and has tens of thousands of followers, including me. I would strongly recommend everyone to go check out Jim's videos on YouTube or Billy Billy, and we will be posting links to the videos in the show notes. Jim has also recently founded an influencer management platform for Chinese brands going outbound called Relay Club, which has just finished a round of angel fundraising. Jim, welcome to Shanghai Zhan. Ali, Bryce, so good to see you guys, and thank you for having me on. I'm a big fan of the podcast, and、uh, especially of your. Amazing、uh, audio setup over there, Bryce. It looks like you're、uh, commentating on a baseball game or something. This is amazing. Yeah, we only go pro here. There's no, there's no downhill from us.、Uh, welcome to the show. Glad to hear you're a fan. And tell us a little bit about Relay Club. What is it about, and what problem do you seek to resolve when you got started? Absolutely. So to provide a little bit of context, I've been living in China、uh, since 2009, just after the first. Uh, Olympics that happened in Beijing. I arrived on a flight from the United States and have been working and living in China.、Uh, first, working for some brands, doing、uh, corporate communications content, and then moving into the agency world,、uh, helping Chinese brands create films for foreign audiences. And then in the last two years, myself、uh, being an influencer, creating content on YouTube and Billy Billy. Through this whole journey, I've gotten to really understand a lot about the needs of Chinese brands that want to go outbound. And one interesting thing that started happening when I started working myself as an influencer was, as I began to grow my channel, some of the very same brands that I had worked with for many years would start to reach out to me, usually over email. And I would get emails from a lot of Chinese companies that would say things to me like, "Hello, this is Lily from Shenzhen Electronic Cables Incorporated Limited." And we would like to collaborate with you on a sponsored piece of content. But often there's all this industry jargon, and often the pieces that I would get or the request for collaboration would be created in such a way that they would be really, really off-putting for me as an influencer. And the worst example of this, by the way, was there's been more than one time where 
because I think the person writing the email has used a form letter, that they actually refer to me by a totally different name. Like I would get emails that are like, hello, Mike, would you like to make a promotional video for our electronic bicycle? (laughs) (laughs) And so the wheels started turning in my head and I started thinking, okay, I know a lot about Chinese brands and I know a lot about I'm starting to know a lot about foreign influencers and what we call KOLs, key opinion leaders, and realized that there was this huge gap in the middle. And, you know, Ali and Bryce, you guys know this as longtime China guys. There's always challenges for Chinese companies when it comes to working with folks around the world and realized that there was a real opportunity to build a bridge to connect these Chinese brands in a better and more efficient way with international influencers. And that was the genesis of what made us want to build Relay Club, which is uh, uh, the the jargon on our side, the software as a service platform to connect Chinese brands with influencers overseas on TikTok and YouTube and Instagram. That's really interesting. I remember working with Huawei. It was uh, several years ago. And when we were launching the phones, we would use foreign influencers. I always remember that the influencers were obviously paid but they just didn't really have the passion for the products, except when the cameras were rolling. As soon as we started filming them, they got super excited about, oh, the P9 is incredible. It's the most amazing phone I've ever seen. And then they, we turned off the camera and then they just pick up their iPhone and continue texting. Do you think that you have a certain advantage to helping Chinese brands go abroad than let's say Chinese brands who will just contact influencer agencies abroad. What's the key advantage of Relay Club given the huge amount of influencers that Chinese brands could easily connect with directly? Well, first of all, I think your your point about Huawei is really interesting. And there's actually a famous anecdote, which I don't know if you have heard or perhaps knew from back then, where Ren Zhengfei, the leader of Huawei, had been photographed going through the security check in an airport. And as he went through the console, you know, where you put your items in a kind of container to go through the the bag check, he had an iPhone, uh, an iPad, and I think also a MacBook Air. Later on, someone from media questioned him like, hey, what's going on here? Like, why aren't you using the Huawei products? And he's like, hey, you know, I'm just like anybody else. Like, these Apple products are fantastic. Like, I love them. Uh, And (laughs) I just thought that was so funny because... For a lot of Western brands, that would be such a gotcha moment, right? Like if Sarah J. Brin from Google is walking around with an iPhone. Uh, so first of all, I just think, you know, even at Huawei, like there's a lot of folks using iPhones, not just the influencers. To, to Relay Club, I think the problem is it's about authenticity, right? And and the thing you're touching on is if someone is given a bag of money and, and kind of compelled to say something that they don't believe in, it's going to come off as being a little bit fake. And in this modern social media era, I think that most consumers are hyper aware of uh, people who are espousing messages they don't believe in. The BS detector is pretty finely attuned. And so we think that the best strategy for basically helping brands that want to work with influencers is to find people who are actually going to communicate the right messages about your product or your brand. What's the difference between the China market and the Western markets in the context of influencers? I mean, we know that 67% of surveyed advertisers in China now are, are purely doing key opinion leader KOL promotions. Uh, Do you think Chinese advertisers are taking a similar approach to marketing and export markets that they do so in China? Or is there generally a misunderstanding of the Western markets that needs your attention? What do you think the differences are? This is a great question, Bryce. And I think that people in 
the West have a tendency, and I think you've probably seen this yourself, to assume that the West is sort of number one in every category when it relates to the internet and digital technology. But, you know, a cursory, you know, one to two years in China will totally upend that understanding, right? For influencer marketing, I think the interesting part is that it's actually much more developed in China than it is in the West, which is also why you see platforms like TikTok that are sort of modeled off of a Chinese product called Douyin that have become extremely popular overseas. And when it comes specifically to your question about influencers and kind of the workings of how they're different in the West and in China, I think the biggest difference that we see is that domestically in China, uh, the influencers who are really well known, who have millions and millions of followers, get a lot of options to work with brands. So you think about a guy named Li Jiaqi, for instance, the lipstick king, uh, who is a man who does lipstick product reviews. He is extremely popular, for example. The thing that we think is interesting is actually we help out a lot of kind of mid-tier uh, influencers. So with Relay Club, we are also helping brands in China who want to reach out to influencers who have perhaps 10,000, 50,000, 100,000, 200,000, 500,000 followers. We think that these kind of small to mid-sized uh, KOLs, key opinion leaders, can also move the needle a lot for brands. And that's one of the things that we focus on. Hey, but why do you think that is? Do you think it's a cultural thing? And, and it sounds like a cultural thing as well, where Chinese brands or advertisers seek out the number one, the one with the most followers. Because that tends to be something that we definitely do in China. And they may not necessarily have the same impact, but maybe it's also uh, maybe it also has to do with um, with the analytics around uh, around influencers and and how they report back to uh, their bosses on how well that social media campaign went. Is there a difference in how advertisers look at their social media marketing in, in this market versus the rest of the world? I think it's a really good point. I mean, I think first of all, one thing that maybe gets understated is just like the sheer population size of China. And I think, you know, for instance, living in China, it's always surprising when you go to like a second tier city or wherever. And, you know, for instance, it's the capital of that area or, or whatever. And it's a random city you've never heard of. And the population is like 12 million people, you know, uh, whereas, you know, in the United States, for example, like a city with 12 million people would be known to almost everybody because the population is like 25% of that of China. So first of all, just across the board, right, like the numbers are like way, way, way smaller for for everybody in certain markets. The the next piece, though, I think in what you're saying is very true. There is metrics inflation that happens a lot in China, uh, especially for domestic marketing campaigns where everybody jukes the stats a little bit as they you know report uh, the, the things internally and then Perhaps the the middle marketing manager reports one set of numbers and they get slightly increased when they go up the chain to the CMO. And then for the you know annual company C-suite roundup, uh, the numbers are even higher. And, and there have been a lot of situations where we see like a real uh, desire to have really high numbers. And if you're a brand that is doing cross-border influencer marketing and you hire a dude who just, for instance, an expert in like reviewing projectors, home projectors, for example, and he only has 200,000 followers and a video about a projector only get seen by, you know, 60,000 people, for example, that's not very impressive from a Chinese sort of social media marketing perspective. Even if 10% of those people go on to buy an expensive projector product and they see like real ROI uh, in terms of sales, it won't look very impressive in terms of sheer numbers. So I think you're absolutely right, Ali, that there's a big difference there. I think another thing too, which I do recall was one of your YouTube videos was talking about the differences between YouTube and Billy Billy but more importantly about how influence are monetized in the West versus in China. So oftentimes, as you know, influencers, they're incentivized on YouTube, for example, by the number of, of viewers 
Could you explain the differences to our, let's say, our overseas audiences who may not be familiar with what the differences are in terms of how influencers make money in China versus in the West? Of course. And and first of all, uh, Bryce, I'm like blushing over here that you have actually watched a bunch of the episodes on the the YouTube channel. Uh, it's it's really nice to talk to someone who who you know enjoys the content. It's really hard work, as you guys know, with making a podcast to make content. So. Uh, Talking to folks who, who watch it and like it is, is really wonderful. To talk about uh, YouTube versus Billy Billy, I think this has kind of a domino effect for how brands work with influencers uh, in China and, and outside. Is, is One thing I learned pretty quickly making content myself on these two platforms was YouTube does a rev share, which is where they actually will take a proportion of the, the revenue that, you know, for instance, if you're watching a YouTube video, there's ads that are spliced in by the platform at the beginning and at the end and perhaps throughout the video. And the money that is spent by the advertisers uh, for that ad space is then divided out and spent to uh, two parties. One of them is uh, to YouTube itself that takes, you know, anywhere between 40 to 55 percent. And the remainder actually goes directly to the person who created the content if they have the ability to generate revenue from, from their channel, which is generally activated when you have over a thousand subscribers. So on YouTube, uh, it creates the system whereby just via traffic, you can actually get a significant amount of money on every month. And if you're doing, you know, for instance, hundreds of thousands of views per episode, or if you have more than a million followers, this starts to like look a lot more like a steady income stream as opposed to just like a side hustle. Now in Billy Billy, it's very different where actually they have a system called uh, Bake, like a shell and you can accrue shells through views. But uh, I spent two years making content on Billy Billy, and I got loads and loads of these shells, and I never actually tabulated how much the shells were. Like, what is the shell to RMB conversion ratio? And after accruing, I don't know, something like 2.5 million views from all the videos that I made, I put all my shells together and changed them into RMB, and it was 200 RMB, which, you know, it's like $30, <laughs> right? <laughs> Total. Which uh, is like... It was crazy, right? It creates a system <laughs> where you have to, like, uh, on Billy Billy specifically, if you want to monetize, you have to find ways to insert content uh, that is branded into your channel. And you can do that with Billy Billy system. They do have, like, a creator brand matching system. Uh, or you can do it in a more sneaky way, which is, like, you know, you kind of quasi-organically insert products into your content without sort of uh, acknowledging or, or explicitly stating that it's an ad. So, Jim, a question. Um, how is influencer management and marketing different culturally uh, in the rest of the world? I think you kind of touched upon uh, the types of uh, influencers Chinese advertisers like to engage with, but what level of independence are they willing to also give and what type of control, uh, creative control, do influencers in Western markets like to have over the products that they're endorsing? This is a tricky question for me to answer, right? Because I work with a lot of brands uh, and obviously don't want to talk smack about anyone <laughs> who we're working with. But I think the thing about it is domestically, there is an expectation that brands can exert tremendous influence over what influencers do and say and how they say it and even the specific words they use and the shots and, you know, edits that are made in a specific video, very, very granular control over content. And so it's actually very much a brand dominated space where the brands have total say in, in many ways over what the influencer will do. And in the West, uh, you know, a lot of influencers got their kind of start by becoming well-known creators by making amazing content first and monetizing later. So they, you know, grew their channels and they built deep connections with audiences. And at the same time, 
for instance, the YouTubers we just talked about, they were making money from the platform uh, before they ever started taking brand endorsed pieces where they were actually getting paid to create content for brands. And so in the West, the influencers generally want a lot more freedom and independence. And so you will see a lot of situations where there can be a lot of clashes between brands in China that are more accustomed to, to having more control over influencers. And then Western influencers who, first of all, they're used to more independence. And then second of all, they have a pretty, I don't know, a, a really kind of uh, deliberate decision-making process about the authenticity of their content. So there are certain influencers in the West that no matter how much money you'll you know, try to compensate them for for a piece of content, if they don't believe in the product or if they don't believe in the mission of whatever you're trying to sell, they just won't do it. They won't say it, right? Because they actually believe that creating true and authentic content for their audience is the most important thing. But yeah, it's very different between the two markets. I think it applies to everything that we do, even as advertisers, or at least to a great extent as advertisers. We try to be as authentic as we can with the brands and we represent. Can I ask you guys a question? Today, we're talking about, you know, influencer marketing and content. And I was curious um, for you guys, what is it like for you, you know, making the podcast and also creating content on YouTube? How does it feel for you guys to have become influencers? Um, and also, have you also yourselves gotten uh, inquiries from brands that are interested in collaborating on you know, sponsored episodes or content. I mean, maybe you can't say for uh, specific reasons, but I was just curious about that. I've been approached a number of times. I don't know if you have, Bryce, but it's always been a very kind of indirect, it's always been an indirect kind of a request to be on the podcast. And it's people that are from different industries, everything from technology startups, people doing crypto. And the most recent one was, you know, someone that represents an elevator company somewhere in in, in central China. I kind of engage with them. And when it feels like they're trying to sell their company, then it gets less interesting. And then the other one is I've never really thought, I don't know what you think, Bryce, but I've never really thought of us as influencers because the way you set up the show, it's, you know, it's a labor of love and we just like to talk about something that we're quite passionate about. So it's never uh, like like money and trying to generate money off of the show has never really been a uh, been a provocation for us. It's always been around how do we get this uh, this knowledge out to as many people as possible. Yeah, I right? agree. Something to consider. Yeah, no, <laughs> I think I think it's a good point. Yeah, that we the purity of the of the content is what we try to focus on. We haven't really really explored that very much. I I do have a question. How many requests you get from brands in China looking to export social commerce to Western platforms. So we know that social commerce is very prevalent in China, representing about 16% of total e-commerce sales. Are brands looking to emulate this social commerce piece? Do they ask you to find people that not only could talk good stuff about them, but also help to promote the products? Or is it still early days? So this is an interesting question that actually I think is going to get more interesting in 2023 because the tools for social commerce are like like many things related to the internet in China much more sophisticated than the ones that exist outside of China. And so for example right now if you're on Pinduoduo right like one of China's major uh, e-commerce platforms not only is there product purchasing ability but you can also watch live streams where people are going to be hawking products and the products that they're explaining 
in real time uh, can actually be purchased directly through that platform by clicking a link. And within that ecosystem, you can instantly buy the product. Now in the West, the social commerce tools are sort of in their infancy. The current sort of set of tools that exist are more like affiliate marketing, whereby, for instance, if you're a brand that's selling a product, you can distribute links to the folks who are saying good things about your product. And then the folks who, you know, for instance, publish a piece of sponsored content about your your projector or your drone or consumer product or clothing product or makeup or whatever, then they would get a percentage of the revenue from the sale if a consumer who sees their video clicks the link at the, for instance, below their YouTube video or on their Instagram page. But that's a very circuitous pathway for a brand because the consumer who sees the content it's like a lot of steps, right? They have to watch the piece of content, then they have to click the link, they have to go to another page, and then they have to put in their credit card information, and then they have to buy the product. And with all those steps, it's just further and further away from actually making the purchase. And so one thing that's that's pretty cool is uh, TikTok is absolutely gobbling up the world. And I don't know, Bryce, for instance, you in the States now, if you're, if you're on TikTok now, or if you're making any, uh, you know, dancing music videos on your private account. In any case, uh, the thing that TikTok is about to start offering is it seems as if they're going to be bringing in this live stream e-commerce model to the United States, whereby the same people who are making TikTok videos are actually going to start to potentially be able to also do live streams in the U.S. And in those live streams, they can actually uh, promote certain products and sell them directly within the TikTok app. And if that happens, you're going to start to see some interesting things play out because, you know, like I said, in the past, a lot of these models are actually two or three steps removed where uh, the brands are sponsoring content, but actually tracking conversion or ROI is quite hard. Whereas with live streaming, if you can, for instance, see a video about lipstick and buy that same lipstick directly in the TikTok ecosystem with the same credit card you have plugged into TikTok, you have a closed loop ecosystem, right, where suddenly it's really easy for brands to see which influencers convert and which ones don't. And the ones that convert are going to start to get a lot of brand deals in the future. It's interesting. The uptick of social commerce, in, at least in America, will heavily be influenced by the interest by consumers to give Meta and TikTok their financial details. One of the things that I've noticed talking to people is that they refuse to give their financial information to to Instagram or Facebook. Uh, it's something that's very they're very uncomfortable about. And one of the reasons that social commerce, as far as an in-app transaction, has not really taken off here. But as you know, Americans are very funny about privacy. On one hand, they totally dump their privacy to one thing, <laughs> but then but then they they shout very loud about another one, saying that they're taking all my data from me. And you ask them like, well, wait a minute, didn't you just sign up for this program? Don't you realize that you've already given up most of your data? But I think that's the one challenge that I've noticed is that people are just reluctant to provide the financial details that would create those seamless in-app experiences. It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. But I think if there's money to be made, people may change their preferences. Hey, Jim, I have a question. Uh, money, money-related question, and this is something that we struggle with on a fairly regular basis, and I'm sure there's a number of marketers out there as well. That, um, and and it has to do with uh, uh, live streaming and and um, and influencer marketing and budgeting. I've had the you know I've had the opportunity to have a look at Relay.club, and and I've kind of gone inside the platform and looked at a number of platforms, um, domestic ones and and possibly some international ones as well. 
I'd love to hear what you think about budgeting and allocating money aside for influence. What's what's typically your recommendation, or what, what you know? What's the approach to putting the right amount of money on a certain type of influencer? See, there's different types of engagement. So the type, the investment that you would put behind an influencer on live streaming, different from you know product reviews, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Is there a recommendation that you would make for for advertisers looking at spending some money internationally? Uh, this is a great question, Ali, and thank you for asking it. So I think in general, the thing we see for uh, brands is that they over-index on follower count uh, related to what we were talking about before and under-index on engagement. And it's interesting because engagement tends to be the criteria that really can drive changes in consumer behavior. So if you see an influencer who has like lots of comments and likes and shares uh, of their content as compared to someone who perhaps only has high counts of, of potential followers, uh, the conversion rate for these two different influencers is going to be much higher for the one who has lots of engagement as opposed to the one with many followers. And so the first thing that we've, we recommend folks to look at when it comes to pricing is about engagement. Secondly, I think a, a key thing that we also recommend looking at closely is about the specific category that they're in. So the getting into the kind of nitty gritty of uh, digital marketing in 2022, you know, there's a a term called CPM. Um, and this is a term that's used to kind of represent the relative value of different, uh, you know, influencers uh, based on their their relative ability to convert and advertising value. And YouTube and other platforms will do their own calculations for CPM and they're heavily weighted uh, according to a number of factors. Um, but one of them is about geography. So for instance, uh, influencer who, for instance, is based in the U.S., uh, and has the ability to influence U.S. consumers who have high purchasing power, that person might have a higher CPM than someone, for instance, based in a smaller market, like, for instance, the U.K. or other markets where either the markets are smaller or the consumers have less purchasing power. So, you know, we talked about engagement, we talked about geography, and then I think there's other important factors, uh, but but I think generally speaking, we would always tell people to focus less on the total follower count and focus more on engagement and also region. And then I think the last but not least thing is about verticality or or sort of specificity. So there are a lot of influencers out there who are kind of Swiss army knives, right? They do content about many different types of products or, or services or reviews of different products or services. And one thing that we see is the more specific you are, the better it's going to be in terms of actually getting people to convert. So if you can find the person who is, you know, going to some of these examples we discussed, the projector guy or the lipstick expert, even if they only have a small number of highly engaged followers, if you build an army of, you know, 10 of those folks or 20 or 50 who are really domain experts, that's going to generate a much better result. When it comes to pricing, the pricing thing is is quite difficult uh, and it can vary uh, widely, as you said, Ali, like between, you know, Instagram and YouTube and also on TikTok. Generally speaking, uh, the the advice that we give is YouTube is a really good tool if you want to actually create sales and conversion, just because that's where the the trust is the highest amongst consumers. TikTok is really good for brand awareness, and it could be good for social commerce and sales, as that that tool we talked about gets enabled in 2023. And Instagram is good for brand awareness, but Instagram is starting to have an issue where there's just so much content and so much noise with the Reels feature and other things that are building into Instagram that it's becoming less effective as a as a pure marketing tool. And so as the specifics of budget, I think that might be something we we would have to have a longer conversation about with brands, you know, about like, does this guy get 50 bucks or 100 bucks or a product exchange? But those are the factors that we think about overall.
you know, from your perspective, um, what's the right type of influencer strategy? Would you, obviously, it's given that you, you know, you, you, you manage and run this platform, um, is there a recommendation that advertisers should continuously kind of experiment with different types of influencers so that they can create, um, you know, so they can kind of test and learn and, and build their own uh, repository of influencers that have, that can help them with their marketing goals? Or, is the recommendation that as a young brand you should be be experimenting with different types of influencers what's the right strategy you know for a chinese brand that's going overseas this is a great question ali about about strategy and how you're supposed to kind of get started and 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 raise exposure and awareness and i think for us we see a few different strategies having really high roi so First of all, like we said before, we often don't recommend brands to work just with one huge influencer that has a massive following uh, and spend, for instance, their entire marketing budget on him or her because you're betting the farm on one individual who may or may not be appropriate for communicating your brand goals. Uh, Secondly, we do encourage brands to build out these uh, kind of armies of small to mid-tier influencers who have high ROI with their potential consumer base. So whatever category that they're in, we will encourage them to kind of reach out to find this set of highly engaged and committed influencers who have followings between even as low as 50,000, 100,000, 200,000, 500,000 followers. And the, the thing that's quite interesting about, for instance, YouTube or other platforms, particularly YouTube, is content that you create that goes on YouTube is content that will be there forever. And I know this myself as a content creator where I post content on YouTube and actually it can continue to accrue views and followers and likes and shares long after the time where I actually create the video. And so I guess maybe the third lesson we would give for brands is we also recommend that they look for people who are up and coming KOLs. It isn't just about finding someone who has a lot of followers now. You can use this Relay Club system we've created to actually identify people who are rapidly scaling and growing their following. And if you're doing that on either a quarterly basis or even a monthly basis, you can start to build up this library of folks who uh, are actually going to become very well-known influencers in the future. And if you can find them at that early stage and seed content with them now, it's a little bit like buying into the stock market. You know, you make an investment in like buy low, sell high. You can buy in when they're on this upward trajectory in their career. And that content that you sponsored is still going to live and get views and likes and shares and generate positive attention for your brand far into the future. What do you think, Bryce? Should we uh, enroll ourselves onto Relay? Absolutely. I think definitely that was the case. And that's a good segue into my next question. I think as Ali mentioned, we uh, were approached by a elevators company uh, to, to join our podcast. Not to say that we wouldn't talk about elevators. Uh, at some point in time, <laughs> but uh, it was definitely an interesting one. Have you had any great stories or any type of uh, influencers, outlandish requests for you to help them advertise that you can to share with our listeners? This is a really interesting question. I guess the first thing I would say is we have been exposed to like lots of different kinds of brands. So, you know, myself, uh, I actually, when I was first in China, one of my first jobs was working for Durex, the condom and sex toy company, making video content. And actually, uh, you know, obviously this is a brand that that does lots on social. And I was expecting more uh, content or, or perhaps requests from like adult <laughs> entertainment companies and companies in that sector. But so far that hasn't materialized. So far, the vast majority of our clients have been in this kind of what it's called the Sun C space, the 3C consumer electronics uh, or, you know, personal consumer electronics space. 
we have gotten some companies that are in the Web3 and crypto space. Um, and I, I know you guys have done episodes about Web3 and crypto. And the thing I think that's hard is oftentimes for early stage Web3 companies, they don't necessarily even know what they're selling yet. And so we have had some awkward points where, you know, they're really excited and they want to do something big when it comes to Web3 and they want to work with lots of influencers. But when we ask questions like, hey, what are the influencers actually selling uh, or what is the product that needs to be promoted? Um, things start to get a little bit murky. Uh, <laughs> and as far as like wacky, zany projects, we recently got connected to a brand that creates reusable water balloons. So imagine, you know, children running around at a party, uh, a pool party, they're throwing water balloons at each other. It actually is generating a lot of waste, right? Because like the rubber outsides of these discarded water balloons are ending up in oceans, etc. We got connected to a company in Shenzhen that makes these spherical reusable water balloons. And hopefully uh, they're going to be joining us as a, as a relay club uh, customer in the next several months. The world needs reusable water balloons. They do. I've, I've been to too many parties. Um, do you get product as well from any of your customers? Like if we were to go to your office... Uh, obviously, you're in Lijiang right now, but if we were to go into your space, what would we see? We do get, I mean, some of the products that we work with, we we would get them. But actually, it ends up being mostly the influencers that we work with who end up with a lot of the really fun stuff. Because for our team, we're actually, we're, first of all, we're, we're very geographically distributed. So we do have kind of a head base of operations in Shenzhen, China, uh, with a lot of our developers and, and influencer uh, folks. But actually, a lot of our a lot of our team members are spread out across China. So, for instance, I'm in Lijiang now, as you mentioned, uh, which is where our, our COO is based. Other members of our team are in Southeast Asia. So we have folks in Indonesia and also in uh, the Philippines. So our whole team is actually pretty spread out. And actually, there's other colleagues in Relay Club that I've never even met. Um, so our office, unfortunately, doesn't have a lot of fun toys at the moment. We do have you know engineers and, and developers and marketing folks. Uh, but... Uh, the influencers are the ones who get all the really fun stuff. You mentioned Web3, and we've done some talks about that in terms of AR and VR and the metaverse and things. What do you think that's going to happen to the influencer world? Do you think that we need to rethink influencer and social media marketing? The thing that I, I think when I personally encounter crypto and Web3 projects is I do think that there's a lot of there's a lot of noise and this, the, what is it called? The signal to noise ratio is a bit off. Uh, there are a lot of projects, but there are also a lot of projects that tend to go sideways. And I think it's actually really hard for most people to differentiate between a good project and a bad one. And I think the thing that starts to become hard is like we talked about in the very beginning of the podcast, you know, authenticity is everything, right? People have this really strong ability to detect if an influencer doesn't believe in a product that he or she is is kind of compelled to speak about. So when it comes to Web3, I think like the challenge that we look at going forward is how can we identify projects that are actually really good and pair influencers with projects that are actually going somewhere. And I think the worst case scenario is you have like an influencer who's, you know, for instance, I go, you guys have probably heard about Terra or some of these crypto Ponzi scheme projects that have gotten really big and then blown up. As an influencer, you'd never want to be in a situation where you're promoting a project that's going to lead people to lose their money. So going forward, I think they're, first of all, I think in crypto and Web3, I hope that that space becomes not necessarily more regulated, but at least a little bit more stable. 
Um, and then when it comes to influencers, I think that, uh, yeah, I think I hope that influencers can find ways to uh, connect with good projects. And uh, actually, just to, to summarize this thought, we've actually been fortunate enough to work with a company called Delta Exchange, uh, which is a crypto futures exchange platform. And they uh, have a really outstanding product and they basically help folks trade on the the way that cryptocurrency prices will go up or down in the future. Um, and so for something like that, I think it's a great product for influencers where it's not contingent on the viability of any one specific crypto project. Um, and it can be one where, you know, influencers in the crypto space can demonstrate a lot of knowledge and expertise to their followers. Hey, but Jim, like, let's say we're in the metaverse today. What would influence look like in, uh, you know, within the context of a Roblox or, uh, you know, a Baidu Shirang type of place? Is that uh, like TME land? Like, are we like are are, are Web 2.0 influencers going to take form within the metaverse and also be kind of peddling product within that space? Yeah. So I think the metaverse. Obviously, you, you guys probably know more about it than I do, but I think it's a it's a highly developing term for an ecosystem that it contains a lot of things, right? It includes AR and VR, and uh, it includes a lot of different. It's, it's this big hat umbrella, right? That covers a lot of different topics. But I think the thing that remains true is that humans uh, and the human dynamics and psychology of the way that humans think and work uh, has been very, very consistent for a really long time, and so. As we perhaps move, you know, from, you know, Web 2 into Web 3, or as perhaps folks move away from, you know, traditional like live video content into perhaps content in a metaverse where folks are represented by avatars like in Roblox. I think that people are still going to want to find talents and people who have influence or people who have interesting stories and opinions, people who are experts in specific domains. And so I do think uh, that human dynamic will continue. You know, I don't think that we're going to look at a future where things are just chaos. Uh, and if that's true, then I, I believe that influencers are going to continue to play a role. Uh, I think you guys have also done other content about this, but I know also certain brands are also starting to launch virtual influencers where perhaps it's not a human that actually is the influencer, but it's a you know, it's an AI or it's a bot or it's like a, a brand that's created some sort of avatar that represents them in some way. But I, I personally am bullish. I mean, of course, you're talking to a guy who runs an influencer marketing platform, but I'm bullish on the future of influencers, even in the Web3 world. We've noticed that uh, through our backend analytics, we get a lot of young people on the show listening to the show. Is there something if someone is looking at breaking into the influencer management or maybe being an influencer themselves, what tips or recommendations will you give to them on the journey and making it a full-time job? Absolutely. So, I mean, I wish that I had uh, heard this advice myself earlier, which is uh, twofold. One piece is uh, just start making content. And for me, so I, I was working in video production for many years. I had my company Relay Video before I set up Relay Club. And I had been behind the camera for six years making lots of corporate videos. And I had been so afraid at this idea of stepping in front of the camera because it just seemed paralyzing or terrifying to actually put myself out there in that public way. And it took years for me to get up the courage to finally do it. And when I finally did, you know, that personal process of getting myself comfortable just to be in front of the camera, that was the scary part. But once you actually start doing it and get that momentum, start creating content, 
um, and create it as a habit and create some regularity behind it, that all becomes very easy. But just that initial first step to like get in front of the camera and start talking and creating content and it's going to feel awkward and you're not going to like the way you look and you're going to notice that, you know, mole or wrinkle on your forehead that you didn't before. Uh, and you're not going to like the sound of your own voice. These all these all happened to me <laughs> as I was creating content initially. First, just start making something, anything. And don't worry about the equipment. You know, Do it on your iPhone, which, by the way, is better than most commercial cameras that were in Hollywood 10 years ago. Just start making content. And then the second thing I would say is it's much, much, much more about consistency than it is about you know brilliant innovation or brilliant ideas. So I would, I would recommend anybody who's thinking about creating content actually to look at Mr. Beast, who's, who's now the most successful or perhaps one of the most successful YouTubers who's talked a lot about his journey. And he, he was just so consistent with the way he made videos. You know, when he started, he was just making content every single, almost every single day in the beginning. You can go back on Mr. Beast's channel all the way, you know, I think around 10 years back to his first pieces of content. And he was just relentlessly consistent. His first few videos were very bad and it was just random kind of content of like a young random white kid in the States, you know, uh, playing video games, etc. And over time, he gradually like sharpens the sword, right? Like he gets a little bit better incrementally with each episode. And so the first episode isn't great. And then the 10th episode is better than the first and the 100th is better than the 10th. Um, and just through that consistency of creation, it gets better and better and better. And so... Uh, for other folks who are listening out there, uh, it is a long tail thing. I mean, I think probably Ali and Bryce, you probably saw this with your podcast because I got a bit discouraged when I started making YouTube videos in the beginning because no one was watching them in the very beginning. You know, I was putting my heart and soul into these videos that uh, initially were not really getting much of a following. And you do have to have a period of kind of wandering through the darkness, creating content and putting it out there before you get an uptick, before people start to pay attention. But once that happens, once you get that momentum, uh, it can be really exciting and rewarding. One question before we go into the A and B, I guess. But like for, I think one of the big challenges, I guess, for many, uh, uh, you know, for many uh, content creators might be the type of reaction uh, that they can expect from people at large as well. And how do you get away from all the negativity? Because there's a lot of feedback and there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of opinions. You're making you're exposing yourself to what many, many, many people might you know might might end up commenting on so so as a new content creator a young content creator like how do you get over that fear one thing i noticed as a american living in china is uh you know i post content on youtube and i post content on billy billy and even in the instance of the same piece of video content i've had folks in china accuse me of you know uh purporting an american political message in my video and that same piece of content on YouTube, I have people in the comment section telling me that I'm like a shill for the CCP, right? Uh, for the same video. <laughs> and so you'll you'll get a lot of haters uh, around the world and, uh, you know, you'll get all different flavors of hate uh, from people pretty much anywhere. So you're right. Like there is negativity out there because you do have keyboard warriors, people who you'll never actually have to meet in real life who will say nasty things to you on the internet. And that just it sucks you know and the moderation policies of a lot of online platforms are very good and so there are haters there is toxicity and negativity uh so i would encourage folks to have a thick skin and realize that you know people might say mean things but not to take it too personally um the thing that encourages me though is like the vast majority of the feedback that i get on my stuff is really 
uh, kind and considerate and thoughtful and relatively positive. So I would say like, yes, there are outliers, maybe three to 5% of comments are nasty, but there is, you know, a much higher percentage of folks who really appreciate content. And you do have moments where you're doubting yourself or you're, you know, creating a lot of content and, and wondering if anyone's even watching it or if it means anything, but then, you know, someone will come out of the woodwork in your life and be like, Hey, you know, I saw your video, you know, Bryce was kind enough to say he'd watch the video I made about 5G, for example, or I made a video when I came back from uh, the States to China about my quarantine experience. And that ended up getting picked up in a bunch of like cross-border expat uh, flight, uh, you know, sort of logistics and visa groups in and out of China. And I had all these like very nice, like middle-aged American aunties and uncles coming to me and saying like, oh, you're such a nice young man. I loved your video, you know, and saying nice things about it in that way. So uh, ultimately everyone's just people, right? People are, you know, the the folks, these like these numbers, these metrics of all these viewers and engagement, ultimately it's just people, right? Who are watching your content. And if you can touch some real person and like make an impact on them, that can be like super rewarding and, and really nice. Well, Jim, you really come across as a genuine, authentic person in the video. So I definitely think that you've done done very well there. Maybe it's just yourself, your your the way you are, but I find that that across strongly in your videos. Ali, are we ready for the A B test? We're absolutely ready for the A B test. This is uh the final part of the show, but I'm gonna throw two words at you. The test is called an A B test, um, and it's something that we've stolen from from media and marketing. A stands for Ali, B stands for Bryce. Pick any of the two answers, whatever comes first to your mind. Influencer or KOL? KOL. TikTok or Douyin? I really love TikTok. I'm not going to lie. Uh, every time I'm in the States, I I love it. And the fact that I don't can't access it reliably when I'm back in China makes me very sad. So TikTok. Reach or engagement? Got to be engagement. Anchor or Sheen? Sheen. So I've got to say Anchor because I'm actually using an Anchor power bank to run my laptop as we're recording this. So it's got to be Anchor. AI or ML? At this moment, I think AI has got to be it. Episode fake or real? Uh, <laughs> real. <laughs> That's easy. Micro or mega? Micro. So going along with everything we said today, I think micro... Uh, can have a lot of impact if you find the right people in that little vertical that's going to move the needle for your brand. Uh, W-O-M. Uh, I shouldn't even say that. That sounds like I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Word of mouth or paid? <laughs> <laughs> Word of mouth for sure. And I think that's one of the key values of influencer marketing. Instagram or TikTok? Uh, for me and for most brands in 2022 and beyond, TikTok. All right. Virtual or real? Uh, Got to go with real again. Jim, thanks for being on today. We really appreciate it. Uh, so fascinating. And we'll definitely put links uh, on the show notes to, to your videos and other, other programs. So thanks again for being on the show. Thank you guys so much. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on today's episode. Join us in two weeks for another exciting show. And to all our listeners, until then, have a great day.